Hello, cricket fans, and welcome back to the Ashes Central podcast. I am Ted Wern Jarvis, and I am joined today by two English cricket experts, Pearson Leach and Ethan Krabs, uh, to do a deep dive into the miasma of mediocrity, which is English Test cricket at the moment. We will go through everything from leadership to English TV coverage uh, to ask the key questions what went wrong uh, in this Ashes series and more broadly across this whole year? And secondly, what needs to change for England to become a good side once again? But first off, uh, we'll cover the breaking news. Travis Head, uh, test positive to COVID, is out of the Sydney test. Uh, since then, both teams, uh, all the players from both teams have gone through subsequent tests and it looks like they'll be travelling to Sydney as planned today. So hopefully uh, the test isn't in any danger. But uh, Inglis, Maddinson and March uh, joined Kawaja as the backup players in the Australian squad. Uh, and there's a bit of a question. Maddinson, you know, Inglis and Marsh probably to be expected. Maddinson, maybe not so much. Uh, Ethan, who do you think will, will get the Guernsey on Wednesday? Uh, well, first of all, I'm not sure I'm, I'm an English cricket expert. I'm certainly an expert in perhaps mediocre cricket. So maybe that qualifies uh, me to talk <laughs> about this. Um, but I think uh, Kawaj is a, almost a certainty to, to bat five. I would love to see Marsh just because he seems to be in the form of his life in the BBL and in that warm-up game. But Kawaj has been in the squad this whole time. He was almost 50-50 to play um, with head before the series and he's been you know, edging for Harris's spot. But I think he'll play at number five and that will um, yeah, be very interesting if he does well in that position. Yeah, it definitely seems if Kawaj is the one there. And probably English, Madison and Marsh in there, just in case we have any other results in the next two tests that force other people to come out. Okay, on to the substance of the show. Uh, I don't think we have to re-prosecute, you know, what went wrong for England or how bad, how bad England were um, this year. Just to go through a few things on the batting side, in half the innings this year, they have failed to pass 200, famously 54 ducks by their batsmen. Um, only one average over 40 among their batsmen. Um, and then we've seen some bowling problems. They really don't have a credible spinner either. So I think it's quite clear what some, you know, their, how bad their results have been on the field. Um, but I think we're also all in agreement that there isn't just one simple explanation as to why they are so bad. Uh, and we're going to delve into some of the more systemic problems a little later on. Uh, but to start off with, we'll just quickly cover the, the more obvious, obvious um, peripheral uh, explanations. First off, one that many people have been saying is a bit of an excuse, perhaps, for their performance in this Ashes series is the lack of preparation which they had. Uh, I think I'm right in saying they just played one game against the England Lions, their B team, before the first test. Uh, and then obviously before that, having two weeks in quarantine. So definitely not the ideal start. But how much credence would you give to that, Pearson? I, th I think it, it does, there is a point to it. I think we saw originally we had seven days worth of match preparation between England and England Lions, of which two and a half days got actual play, which is by no means sufficient for the start of a five-test series. And I think we did see, particularly with players like Ollie Robinson, late on, I think that would have been day two of the Brisbane Test. So there were failings in terms of match fitness so I do think a bit more match practice prior to the games would have done better I mean you look back at one of our greater tours in 2010-11 we played 
three first-class status matches against state sides. We played a full-strength 11 in all three games. We dominated all three and we came in on high confidence. So there is something to take away from that. But I think, although we could have done with more preparation, I don't think an extra few days of practice matches in against Tasmania or against Queensland would have won us this series. I think there is more to it than that. Just on that, Pearson, um, I guess the warm-up games gave you a bit of false hope in the sense that Burns and Hamid actually looked quite good. Mm. Uh, and then when you came out in the first test, they, they looked all at sea. Do you think it would have been better to play your practice games against Australian sides rather than the English Lions? It raises a good point. I think you can do a mix of both because the positive with the England Lions, well, maybe less so positive, but the England Lions opposition was almost necessitated by COVID. I think had we had a non-COVID year, we might have gone into a position where we were playing actual opposition. Although it should be noted after 10-11, where we gained significant consequence, sorry, significant advantage off of those tours, that we actually, in 13-14, the States would only put out second 11s to play us because they thought they didn't want to give an unfair advantage to the English. So there is some form of balance to be had here. I think a game against the Lions was probably worthwhile, but I, I would like to see a mix of Lions and tour matches if possible. I think if you just compare it to Australia as well, I know it's a bit different um, being at home, but Australia hadn't played a test since January, um, whereas England were playing throughout the year. So there was almost an argument you could make there with a bit of match preparation. So I think definitely that one, we can firmly discard that as being the, the root cause. Uh, on to another one which really came to the forefront with Broad and Anderson um, missing out on two out of, well, sorry, Anderson, Broad missing out on two out of three tests, Anderson out of one of the three so far. Selection, uh, selection problems, selection mistakes, in particular, uh, the, the theory of resting bowlers. Uh, it's kind of a big philosophy in English cricket. Uh, and then secondary to that, uh, a focus, perhaps a focus on white ball cricket more than red ball. Um, Anderson even saying that, you know, uh, it's been kind of tipped towards white ball cricket in recent years, English cricket's thinking. How much credence do you give to that one, Pearson? There's a lot to go through on this one. I mean, I could talk about this question for hours. So with regards to the selection debate solely on a terms of here's your 18 players, how do you use them? I think we said at the start of the year, well, arguably you could say since, I'd say, the Pakistan series in July, August of last year, England have never had a full-strength team to choose from, be that from injuries or rest and rotation. I think we went to India earlier this year and Joss Butler missed three of the four tests because we decided to rest him. We've done the same thing with Anderson. We did the same thing with Archer at times. And all that's happened is it was to get everyone fresh for this Ashes series. And then we proceeded to have a lot of players miss recent tests, which get them out of form. Obvious examples of that would be broader, that was injury, and Ollie Pope. Then we also had the suggestion, this rest and rotation will keep everyone fit, which quite obviously didn't work with uh, two key strike bowlers, Archer and Stone, both missing the series through injury. So I do think there was clearly this rest and rotation didn't work. I think it meant we continually prioritised an Australian Ashes series, which just destroyed confidence in the players that kept being rested and that they couldn't build a solid portfolio of form. So I do think there was a significant problem there. Uh, with, with your white ball, red ball, you're right. Again, 
there's a lot to go through on this. I mean, I think we saw in 2015, we had a, the nadir of the white ball team when we got dumped out of the World Cup in Australia by Bangladesh in the group stages. I think that was by far the worst moment in English white ball history. So we said, let's reset. We brought in a structure to focus on white ball cricket more. And within four years, we were World Cup winners. So clearly there is success in this reset situation that we introduced. Arguably, we should have won this year's T20 World Cup also. So I do think that it does work. And we've seen the great success it's had to the white ball team. But it has meant we've skewed a lot of our focus towards the white ball team. I know Anderson was the latest player, as you, I believe, mentioned, to come out and say we need a red ball reset because of skewed priorities towards the white ball setup. And I think that is probably true. I'd say the point we're at now with the test side is as low, if not lower, than we were at with the white ball team. So I would suggest we're now in a period where we need to think, let's even things up, let's swap some of the names around, let's change the administration slightly, and let's put a bit more focus back onto test cricket. Would, would you not say that, though, that they have already tried to, to do that? You know, Chris Silverwood coming into the team really solely as to, to focus on the test, and even from the 2019 series onwards, there was a lot of talk about preparing for the Ashes uh, and all of this that hasn't that hasn't worked, has it, Ethan? Yeah, um, I, I just wonder. I think the the white ball formats are a bit more flexible in in the sense that the the way England you know opened the batting in ODIs is a lot different to the way Australia opened the batting in in ODIs, and I'm not sure there's that same flexibility in in tests. Um, you know, you you can't really bring in you know white ball players to, to have a slog at the top to get you through a new ball. There's, there's conventional ways of playing it. It's a more traditional game. Um, so I'm, I'm not really sure that, you know, a massive overhaul to your playing style will, will make much of a difference. And uh, England have, have tried what, what they've done, you know, since 2019, but, but nothing's really worked. And it, it might be a case that, you know, you just need a good batch of 12 players. It's not so much your, your strategy and your approach. It's, it's mental toughness and, and talent that will win you games. Uh, and just finally on the resting as well, the bowling, while there had been some problems, it really hasn't been the major issue. It's been the batting that, that has been the problem. So on that one there. Now onto another one, which a lot of people in the media have been discussing in recent days, uh, a supposed lack of leadership and coaching around the squad. Uh, Robert Craddock uh, and among others has said that Root has potentially ran out of ideas out of 59 tests at the helm. It uh, has been known to happen, you know, a captain just doesn't have the cut through, doesn't, doesn't have the, the creativity that's necessary anymore. Um, would, would you say that that's been a big cause of the problems this year, Pearson? Yes and no. I mean, after the Chennai test that we won in India, which was, I think, the first test the team had won in India since 2017, everyone thought everything looked great for England and its national side. I mean, rooted at that point, surpassed a record wins tally of Michael Vaughan and had a higher win percentage than any other England captain. That has now come quite significantly downhill since. I don't think Root is the root cause here. Sorry for the pun. But I, I, think, I think it goes a bit further than Root. I do agree he's not a naturally great captain. I don't think he's a great leader. I think people respect his batting ability more than they do his captaincy ability. But I think a large... <coughs> The more important problem here is Chris Silverwood than it is Joe Root. I think you can say let's bin Joe Root, 
but then the only option to replace him is probably Ben Stokes, and there's no guarantee that he will overhaul this side. I think Silverwood actually embodies this failure that England have had of late. I mean, and it, it goes arguably further than cricket, is we try to not coach people, and that's been a significant problem for us, because we do what the players like too often. Is you look, we had Ed Smith in as chief selector, and the, enough players said they didn't like Ed Smith, that he got banned and was taken away from his role and everything was given to Chris Silverwood. This idea that we must cave into players' demands all the time doesn't work. Of course, you can just look at the English top order of the last few years to see that. Rory Burns came in with an inherently faulty technique. Sibley came in with an inherently faulty technique. You look at Crawley, you look at Butler, you look at Bearstow, none of them have an obvious temperament to suit test cricket. I think we've created this structure in which players enter in reasonable form and are then not told to adapt to avoid any weaknesses. I mean, it's the same reason we see a lot of players stagnate. Ollie Pope, after the South Africa series in 1920, had a test average of over 50. That's now dropped to a test average of about 30. There is a significant problem there. Same goes for Zach Crawley. After the, at the end of 2020, he was averaging 48, having averaged 53 in that year. He's averaged 10.8 this year. Something is going wrong with the coaching here, and I don't think you can blame that solely on Joe Root. I think Silverwood, I think Giles, and I think Tom Harrison are more obvious failures in this position, to be honest. One thing I did want to mention just with Joe Root's captaincy is it's very hard to um, stick to tactics when you're a poor fielding side. I think England... Um, you know, in the last couple of years, their, their fielding's really let them down. You know, they're, they're much lower in comparison to teams like Australia and India. Um, and really what we saw in that Adelaide test when they went for the, you know, poor Australian submission strategy that worked for India the, the year before, the issue I really think was that they just couldn't take their chances. You know, they dropped, Butler dropped Labuschagne a few times and rather than two for 220, it could have been five or six for 220 and the tactic would have worked. But when you can't take the chances like India took, then you just run out of ideas. The tactics won't work if you can't take catches and, and really punish Australia. Um, and against the best batsmen in the world, you, you've really got to grab your chances. Otherwise, you're just hoping that they'll get, you know, LBW or bowl on a really bad shot. And that's what's going to put extra pressure on Joe Root because he really has no options if your primary tactics don't work because your fielding lets your team down. It's a cliche, but catches win matches. And uh, I think that's what we've seen. Okay, well, they're the more simplistic answers. Uh, I'll, we'll delve into some, some deeper problems now. Uh, I'll put it this way, Pearson. Um, if, if you were in charge of the, the ECB, um, what systemic issues would you diagnose and, and try and fix? Um, first, you know, starting from the most pressing one um, down to the least. I, I would suggest, and I said this in preparation to this whole podcast, is there's roughly speaking about six tiers of importance with English cricket is as we've covered so far there's the preparation aspect which immediately underlies this tour with regards to did we do enough to facilitate a Lions tour did we provide sufficient match practice etc that's what we've just covered along with selection whether we're selecting off white ball or red ball where we see in 2019 we picked Jason Roy to open the batting then six months later we picked Dom Sibley pretty much to polar opposites to show no consistent philosophy in how we play our cricket then you have tier three is the leadership and the coaching which is what we just discussed of 
we're clearly quite mentally weak. Players are stagnating. And there's, I think, Chris Silverwood is pretty much guaranteed to lose his job. And there's a reasonable chance Joe Root will follow him. <laughs> I think the next three tiers, which are a bit more fundamental and a lot harder to fix immediately, are the domestic schedule. So when we play our red ball cricket, when we play our white ball cricket, the domestic setup. So how many teams, how many internationals, how do we produce our pitches, etc. And then you have access to cricket. I'll get to access to cricket later, but for now I'll comment on the schedule. I think schedule needs fundamental changes. I think we've seen, particularly this year, we saw there was county cricket in April and May, and we only saw after the first week of June, there were two rounds in the whole of June, July, and August. That's not close to enough red ball cricket in the height of summer. I mean, you can couple that with the quality of pitches in which we're ending up in games where 120 plays 120. And in a league where 120 is a solid total, you're encouraging players to say, I know it's more advantageous to the team for me to hit a quick 40 or 50 than it is to put my, to basically to carry my life on this wicket and try and grind out to 250 or 100. I think that's a clear problem. I think we actually saw this 20, 30 years ago in New Zealand, is New Zealand had a significant issue if their pitches were almost unplayable. So players would go out and play quick dashing knocks, knowing that could be more important. They then changed the way they played their pitches and it vastly improved their setup. And they now have a group of bowlers who have to work harder for their wickets, something we don't have, and a group of batsmen who know how to bat time rather than produce impressive cameos, which again, we don't have. I think, <laughs> I found it interesting, there was an excellent pop, there was an excellent Farbrace article that came out recently in which he suggested Dom Sibley is the only player on the entire county circuit who has sufficient temperament for test cricket. And I think a large part of that is the quality of pitches are too poor. I think we've seen that. We've seen the quality of internationals is also too low. I mean, you look at Somerset in the 80s, had Botham, they had Ghana, etc. They had one of the best sides you'd see that could challenge international opposition. You now look at the Somerset side, Jack Leach is probably their star player. And the internationals they're bringing in are Babar Azam for a T20 competition rather than the Red Bull tournament. If you can't face quality bowling and you can't bowl at quality batsmen, you're less likely to succeed. England are picking Lancashire players at this point because Lancashire's the only side that has multiple 90 mile an hour bowlers because they think they'll be more transferable, the skill set into test cricket. If only one of 18 counties is able to provide that, then we have inherent flaws in the way we run our county system. There's a lot of ways to change that, but I'm not going to extend this answer any longer. One thing I would ask you, Pearson, is Australia have a, a similar sort of setup in that we play all our shield cricket at the sort of start and end, and then all our test cricket in the middle, and someone like a Will Bukowski who missed those early games can't come back into the test team because there's no shield cricket. Is that an issue with Australian cricket, or is it the case that England are so far behind that they need different systems to Australia in order to catch up. It's, it's a problem in Australia as well. I think the fact Australia are ranked below New Zealand and New Zealand are world test champions is testament to the fact that most sides in world cricket aren't necessarily performing to the extent they should be. I mean, in theory, India, Australia and England should be a distance clear of every other test side. That's pretty clearly not the case at present. I think India can stake a claim to be a distance for everyone else. 
England very much can't, and Australia can more than us, but not fully. So I, I think you have a problem. I think your problem is lesser than ours. I think you are a naturally better test side. What I would also propose is you may play away from the height of summer, but you also have places like Karen Rolton only. There's no ground in England where the average score would exceed 500 runs in the first innings. There are grounds like that here. Players have to work harder for their wickets here, and they use a kookaburra ball. A red jukes ball on green tops in England in April and May is going to have a far more detrimental effect than playing games in October and early November with a red kookaburra ball on flat wickets. So it's not solely the time of year, although that does have a problem in and of itself. I also think there's more of a problem weather-wise is the climate is colder in England. So the heat you get in early November, late October here is as hot as England get in their height of summer. So I don't think they're fully transposable, but I do think both could do more to try to get at least domestic Red Bull cricket into the height of summer. I think the big bash is too long here. I think that needs to be cut down in the same way. I think England do not need a T20 and a hundred competition. You pick one and you bin the other. I think that's the first thing England have to do to obviously improve their scheduling is to remove one of them. I think the point about the, the pressure the players face in county cricket uh, or the lack of pressure they face rings true a lot because you see with their batsmen, they're, as you say, unable to, to bat lengths of time and, you know, gain control of a match. And even with their bowling, which has been quite good at times, there seems to be just in the field placements, um, you know, waiting for the batsmen to get themselves out rather than the batsmen to, uh, rather than the bowlers to actually to actively get wickets. Sometimes it's just too slightly too deep fields, you know, slightly too, too square or something. There's just something not quite right there. And if, as you say, in the county, there's a lack of pressure on, on, on getting wickets because of the pitches, uh, that probably explains a lot of that there. A problem yeah, there, 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 there must be a reason that 46-year-old Darren Stevens is averaging 18 with the ball across a season. The 46-year-old should not be performing that well. He's averaging 50 with the bat and 18 with the ball. That's an indictment of, A, the quality of county cricketers. There are far too many players there that Michael Atherton refers to as coasters, meaning they do essentially nothing to improve themselves. But no, there's enough players in the system that they're safe in their position. So is that, come out is that the problem? Nice 25 each game. Well, is that, that the there, problem there that is, there's too there many is, players in the system? Like how, how do these That's, these that's definitely another argument system. to make, is Australia has six first-class red ball teams. England has 18. There is obviously an issue there also. I do think there would be significant difficulties in trying to reform the system and getting rid of 10 sides. Of course, a major shareholder in all of this are the county members, and no county member is going to allow the removal of their county. I think if you were to make a change and cut it to, let's say, eight teams, this is an idea that Kevin Peterson, for example, is very strongly in agreement with. He would like eight teams, and I think you would have to change it so rather than counties, you would have them as regions. So you would have maybe eight 20, so eight 20 player regions, Northwest, Greater London, Southwest, et cetera, et cetera. And you could use that as an example. That removes essentially two thirds of county players and guarantees you have a far more condensed competition. I think yeah, but- if you compare 
although it's white ball cricket, I would like to bring up the comparison of the 100 to the T20 Blast, is the quality of the 100 is as good as, if not better, than the quality of players in any other domestic franchise league in the world. Blast lags behind in quality on the Big Bash, the IPL, the CPL, the PSL, etc. So there is an argument to be had that if we remove players from the system, maybe we produce these 18 counties as the new almost minor county setup that are feeders towards these new regional sites, you could have a better chance. Whether there's the political will to actually make such widespread changes is another question. But but surely even if Australia only has eight sides, you know, you're double, over double the size of Australia, surely you should be able to, to field more sides than just the eight. Um, you know, is there a lack of talent this, in the system? This, this, this takes you to a deeper question, which is, do England sufficiently harness their population? And the answer is quite obviously no. Is you look at the current England County setup, about 70% of players attended private school, whereas nationwide only 7% of people attend a private school. Admittedly, I don't know what the exact maths is there, but the point is that there's a significant overrepresentation of private school students in these tournaments. When we got bowled out for 58 in Auckland by New Zealand in 2018, a fascinating article came out saying we played 11 students, 11 players, all from private school backgrounds, and dropped Liam Livingston, the one player who went to a, not, who went to a comprehensive school. And that arguably was our downfall because we have students that have essentially grown up under this system with high barriers to entry. And it's meant that players have entered the county system. Like, I mean, you look, a solid example is Sibley and Burns have played the last 15 years together because they went to high school together. 50% of the Surrey squad all come from the same high school. There is a significant problem there. There's also, if you're looking at racial representation, with the amount of, particularly in a place like Birmingham, that has very strong Asian backgrounds, there are very, very few Asian cricketers on the domestic circuit. Of course, we've had Hamid, Moeen, Sakib Mahmood, and Adil Rashid are essentially the only four in the last decade worth noting that have been of that heritage. So I do think there's an argument that we don't access the talent we need to. I think a key thing is synthetic wickets, is you go to a primary school in Australia, every single oval has a synthetic wicket in the middle. That doesn't exist in England. All club cricket, even Saturday morning under 16, B grade, like we once played, is played on turf wickets. And to get turf wickets requires more money and more effort, and therefore higher barriers to entry for the players. So I do think if we adopted a culture in which cricket was cheaper, and could be facilitated by schools that weren't Etonian in nature, we could access a lot more players than we currently do. But at the minute, that's just not happening. It seems in Australia that it doesn't really matter what school you go to because the, the selections for higher honours and for state, they really come from the clubs and then from the, the competition that those clubs are in and then going up through that. Is it a similar system in England or how... Say if you're an under 16, how do you, a good under 16s player, how do you get selected for, for higher honours? Is it through the schools more than clubs? So there are, there are county pathways is how it works. Generally from the age of 10, under 10s upwards, there are a range of county teams. 
So Lancashire, for example, have their current golden generation going, which produced Hasib Hamid, Josh Bahannon, Sakib Mahmood, Matt and Callum Parkinson, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all quite likely to represent England in the future. They would all have been picked by these counties and we and brought into their pathway system at around the age of 10 to 12. The problem we have actually with these pathway systems is there's too much focus on white ball ingenuity. Is Paul Farbrace again from the article I mentioned before said that in a lot of county pathways, they will ask, they will tell the players prior to trials, we want to see players that are able to play impressive shots, such as ramps and reverse sweeps that show a large amount of skill. And you also have to think if you're doing an hour long tryout, you can't prove your temperament in an hour, whereas you can show these flashy skills. I think something England have perennially gotten wrong is they think you can teach a player temperament, but you can't teach them a skill set. Well, I think it's the exact opposite. So I think you can see we have a lot of players that have a roughly conventional technique. We have Don Sibley as pretty much our only player with sufficient temperament for test cricket. So I do think there is a problem with these pathways. And there's also the point of, as you said before, do the schools play a big role? Yes. Like the Whitgift School produced Burns, it produced Sibley, and it produced a range of other Surrey cricketers. A lot of of independent schools have close relationships with these counties and are able to provide opportunities to players that comprehensive schools simply can't. So I, I think there's a mix there. There's the way in which they're picked, there's the connections these counties have to the schools and a tendency to stick with the players that have been in their pathway since they were 10 rather than look at top performing 16 year olds from outside the system. I see. Uh- so, and with the, just looking at like local clubs, how, how would you compare that to Australia? You know, are there too many local, local clubs um, around the place that, you know, the, the talent is too dispersed or, you know, what's the problem in that area of things? Is it, I, I mean, granted, I couldn't say for sure. I haven't lived in England for a decade now. And when I left, we were by a distance, the best test team in world cricket. So I'm possibly not the perfect source on this. But from my recollection, there are a lot less sides than there are here. And that's also because a lot less people play cricket. I mean, you look in Australia and in the UK, the national sport is cricket. But a far larger proportion of the population here play cricket than they do in England. So I think it roughly does. I'd say there's about a similar amount of clubs, despite us having three times the population. I think the problem we have is getting back to the synthetic versus turf argument is we treat our domestic game too seriously, is everyone uses turf wickets. And that means when you have 10 year olds playing on turf wickets, the ball doesn't bounce because it's impossible to face and you don't really get runs, you don't get wickets and everything gets extremely expensive for player, parent and club management. So I think, but I do think it should be noted most players do learn their sort of the basics of cricket at their clubs rather than at schools. But I I don't think the clubs are a massive problem, to be honest. I think the problem we have is purely the way that we select players into the county pathway, whether we select too many, whether we allow players like a Darren Stevens to stay on too long in those systems, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you look at Australia clearly. I mean, it's not like Australians dominate county cricket either. 
I mean, we look at someone like Labashane this year was dismissed twice or possibly three times by Darren Stevens, the 46-year-old. I know the Australians in county cricket have a group chat called Stevo's Gonna Get You, named after Darren Stevens. So clearly, it's not an easy solution. If Australia are significantly better test side, also have players, Travis Head only averaged about 12 this year in county cricket. Peter Hanscom was the same. Manus Labashain performed a lot better in the T20 blast competition than he did county cricket. So clearly, I think it's a case of county pitches are poorly prepared. There's too many average players in the tournament that know a quick fire 30 will do more than hanging around because there's always a wicket with their name on it. So I, I don't think there's much you can say other than flatten out the wickets and bring in better quality cricketers. I don't think there's much else you can do in terms of attracting talent in the long term. Nathan, we'll just go to you. Would you agree with all that? Yeah, again, I, I'm not sure I've been cast as the English expert here, but um, <laughs> I think I think you see a, a similar thing in Australia with uh, rugby union while we, while we sort of struggle to yeah. compete with the All Blacks because it's, it's a private school sport. And it's just not accessible. There's not enough opportunities and pathways and simply not enough people play it. Whereas in New Zealand, um, everyone's, everyone's playing it. Everyone wants to be an all black. Um, and so you've got to make cricket more accessible to everyone and, and find better pathways um, that'll allow, you know, that your best players and, and get as many people as, as involved as possible. Indeed. And just finally on that point, do you think there's, there still is, you spoke about Pearson, about comparatively less people playing cricket um, in England. Do you think there still is um, an enjoyment of cricket and, you know, an interest even in, in the new T20 tournaments and these sort of things? Do people across all of England, uh, you know, enjoy this and get behind this in the same way that Australians do? Well, I, th- I think getting into a slightly separate point here is there's been a Another issue with English cricket is the way it's broadcasted and publicised is since the 2005 Ashes, which are widely regarded as the greatest ever, there's never been an Ashes series or a test match broadcast on terrestrial television in the United Kingdom. So the only people that can watch it remotely regularly are those with sufficient funds to buy Sky Sports, or essentially, which is the exact same as buying Foxtel in Australia. And a large portion of the country just simply can't afford to do that. And so even these Ashes series, they took it off Sky Sports and gave it to BT Sport, which is another high-paying non-terrestrial TV station. So yes, people do enjoy it. But when the only game in the last 15 years that's been played for everyone to watch is the 2019 World Cup final, there is a difficulty in getting people to actually watch it with any regularity. If you want people to enjoy cricket, you sit them in front of it. And we haven't done that enough. So I think maybe the 100 will get more people to grounds. But I think the ultimate problem we've got is there's not enough people at home watching cricket and being inspired by it to actually take up the game. Yes, Sky do some things. They invest a lot of money into grassroots cricket. But if you're not expanding the viewership of the sport, then that largely <laughs> adds up to nothing. And we're not really gaining in any huge degree by having it there again financially it's very difficult to take it away from sky but possibly that is a problem sure i I know you were quite young when when this happened but um you know in in 2010 at the the height of england's test success 
was there anything different then um, as to now uh, in terms of people watching cricket or just in terms of the county structure or are all these problems problems that have built up over time uh, to get to this stage? I think they're definitely problems that have built up over time. I think we did see at least back then there was a lot, it was a lot easier to score runs and players batted time a lot more. I think a large part of it also comes down to franchise cricket is people say T20 is destroying test cricket. It's not so much a case of, although scheduling is bad, it isn't solely a case of people are playing in the big months, they're playing T20 tournaments. What you see often with English players, you can look at Harry Brook is an excellent example of this. Tom Abel is a good example of this. Is there two very bright talents around 25 years of age who are ideally future test cricketers? What's happened to them is they keep getting called up into franchise leagues. And because of that, it doesn't allow them to spend time on their own working on their technique. You look at someone like James Hildreth in 2010, scored 1,400 runs at 65 in county cricket, and he, he's never gotten an England test cap because of the sheer quality of players we have. And he was able to go away and work on his technique every single winter. Our top talents can't do that because they're scouted into tournaments. Sam Curran is arguably the most enigmatic player in English cricket. Is he has the obvious potential to be a quality fourth seamer and number seven batsman, but he will never be able to perfect his record craft because he misses two thirds of the county season by playing in the IPL. And that's the case, and that will eventually become the case in Australia as well. Although you're luckier in that none of your domestic red ball season <laughs> coincides with the IPL or any other major T20 league. All it means is we're losing some of our players to develop with the red ball by entering franchise cricket in a way that there wasn't in 2010. But beyond that, I think the system is the exact same. The players selected the exact same. Possibly the rise in franchise cricket is part of the reason that selectors are asking to see 12-year-olds playing ramp shots and reverse sweeps, etc. But on a purely structural level, I don't think much has changed in the last 10 years. Yeah, okay. And we might be belaboring this point a little bit, but um, I'd also just ask, a few people have spoken about uh, a need for English players to play overseas in Australia, perhaps also, because that's really the, you know, the, the low light of, of uh, the problem um, is your horrible record in Australia since 2010. You know, I know it's a bit hard with a different sort of system in Sheffield Shield, but is there a possibility of, of getting, you know, as we've seen with Australians, even if they haven't had a huge amount of success, you know, going across the county to get that experience in different, uh, different types of grounds, could, could something similar be done with English players? England are too nice. Australia in a million years would never allow English players to get good by playing for New South Wales or Victoria. We're happy to let Australians play for Surrey. I mean, we let, who have we let? If not for the Glamorgan head coach who altered Lavishane's technique, which enabled him to score as many runs as he had, we may never have seen this Manus Lavishane averaging 65. So there are two arguments to this, is England would love players to play in the Sheffield Shield. But it's not to Australia's benefit to allow two English players to join every team. We have so many teams that to improve quality, we need those internationals. You don't. So I don't think it's a case of 
would England like to send players over here more? Of course we would. I mean, clearly some of our better players have gotten that way because of their success in Lions tours in those respective countries prior to major tours. But there's not much you can do if Australia is unwilling to cooperate on that. So I don't think that's something you can blame the English for. I think you can just say, we're unlucky. There's not much you can do. Maybe bring the kookaburra ball into English conditions, maybe flatten out the pitches, and we might get a more Australian-like county cricket system to mirror the shield, even if it's only for four of the 14 rounds. Four of 14 rounds with a red kookaburra ball on flat wickets. We've tried it once in either 2018 or 2019, and they abandoned it because every team kept hitting 600. But what we saw from that is it proved bowlers don't have sufficient skills to work hard for their wickets. So if you're going to solve this problem, you need to cut out the teams and maybe reduce it to an 18 league where only the best players are in it. And then you need to make English conditions mimic Australian conditions more. Not send English people to play grade cricket in Australia because Sheffield Shield won't allow us in. So I, I really don't think there's yeah. much you can do to get used to conditions. Yeah. At least yeah. in Australia. Yeah, and that, that last point you, you raised probably is where the biggest contrast to in Australia is. The Sheffield Shield really is now a development league um, and with a high amount of control by Cricket Australia uh, and with, you know, specifically engineered pitches to make it flat. You know, we see Karen Rolton over um, North Sydney Oval, absolute junction over even absolute batting paradises here. So, um, yeah, and that probably, I've never thought of it, but it, it could be a, a deliberate attempt by the by the Australian Cricket Board to, you know, have their players deal in those tough, tough conditions in a way that in England they don't. Perhaps anything else you want to add? Uh, just on the, the, the three last tiers that you, you mentioned, Pearson, with the domestic schedule, domestic setup and access to cricket, how much of that do you think can actually be realistically changed and will be changed? Uh, appreciably little. I think there's very little that will be done about access to cricket. I think that's just an unlucky fact at the minute. I think cricket is so embedded with Sky Sports that we won't see any great change, at least in that regard. I think the domestic setup, I think because there's so much power in the hands of county members, I don't think we'll see a change in number of teams any time soon. I think there's also a clear, I think, well, the clubs voted on it, quite at the end of last season of should we have three 16 conferences to try to condense talent or two 19 divisions and they went for the two divisional setup which suggests a lot of the members and the clubs themselves are particularly eager to change what i do think could change is the way that it is scheduled i think there's already been evidence that england are trying to pigeonhole more red ball games into the height of summer I think, granted, it has been to further marginalisation of 50 over cricket, but we can get to that at a later date. We can probably mend that. But I think the schedule will be moved, and I'm quite optimistic on that front. But I don't think access to cricket or the number of teams and the like will be changed. The only thing that can be is the schedule and the way the pitches are produced. Well, on that somewhat disappointing note it's probably time to end uh, I don't think perhaps inevitably uh, I don't think we we came to a conclusion on the one solution for them but I think uh, we're all in agreement that it's not a simple 
problem uh, with a simple fix. It's not something as simple as just getting different players in. It's not something as simple as sacking Joe Root um, or maybe even not as simple as sacking Chris Silverwood. Uh, there are systemic problems with English cricket at the moment. And um, to be frank, it's sad to see for all cricket fans, I think. Uh, but just, just before we go, I would also have to say as an Australian that um, this tour, well, this uh, series by Australia has been quality cricket by all of us, you know, for for probably one of the first times in the summer, we've had a lot of different players performing. We've had, you know, our bowling, well, not, not quartet, sextet or whatever it is, um, is probably the best we've seen for years. So I think a lot of credit does also have to go to Australia's performance uh, in these series. Uh, we'll be back with a preview podcast on Monday, I think. Vass will be taking us through that one. Um, thank you all for coming on. It's been a very interesting podcast. Um, and thank you all for listening. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll see you back soon. Goodbye.